The biggest change that's had the longest impact on me and my life was effectively gave me a free roll of the dice. As an industry, we have access to some of the greatest minds, young minds coming through. I think I was 15 at the time and I drew it up and worked out what the materials would cost me. And I think probably the, the biggest aspect is being able to let go and trust. How did you decide what the students wanted in this building? affordability is an issue and you know the sector can do something towards that actually if we stop and think and go what do people really care about it was a really challenging period for a lot of people there's nothing glamorous about a, a career traveling around the world when you're up at three o'clock in the morning and on a Ryanair flight to Stansted. I read a lot about ESG fatigue. I think there's absolutely more we can do I think we've probably got the most engaged customer base of pretty much any industry. So tired from working all week that you're basically in bed for the weekend and, and the kids go off to school Monday morning and you go back to work. What's going to be your next big change? I think for me... Hi Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, a bit of a different location for us today. Um, we're at St Crispin's house in Norwich. So um, different location, but same first question. What's the hardest change you've been through in your life? I, I knew this question was coming, but it didn't make it any easier to, to think of an answer. You know, there's so many things happen in your life. And kind of the more I thought about it, I was like, well, there are instances of change, but they tend to come over a longer period of time. And then, you know, there's the obvious ones of having kids or the impact of COVID and a complete change and shift to your work life and family life but I suppose for me the biggest change that's had the longest impact on me and my life was actually the choice of where I went to university and and indeed going to university so I I was debating whether I'd go go to university I I think my parents always expected me to but you know from 15 I was pricing carpentry work for people as a as a self-employed contractor um you know during my summer holidays through to you know doing all kinds of different work and and sailing and outdoors and my plan had been to go and do an adventure center management course um so that i could take that and travel the world doing exciting things um and i was offered a place um straight into second year on that course which effectively gave me a free roll of the dice to to try a construction management and the environment degree which was in Plymouth chosen I'd love to say all about the course but probably more associated with with the location and being still able to head out sailing and get down down into Cornwall um, and in doing so I moved from Ireland moved moved to Plymouth where I didn't know anyone had zero contacts zero relationships and I came over and um, went around the city and needed to find somewhere to live and found a place in in one of the early Unite buildings which was the first I'd ever heard of PBSA of course it I didn't call it PBSA it was it was somewhere to stay at the time um, and just by that simple act of moving away and that change of moving away and living away and moving into a PBSA building, I ended up getting to know the manager of the building. Um, 
mainly because of noise complaints about me having uh, parties uh, a little bit too loud in, in the first few weeks. Uh, but the manager was so impressed with how I managed to um, persuade my neighbor to, to not complain uh, by befriending them. And, and we're still friends, actually. And I learned just to invite them in. Um, so through that, I then became a, back then it was called being a warden. So effectively getting paid to stay in one night a week um, to let other people in if they got locked out. Um, and that saw me get, you know, cheap rent and a wage for my second year, um, through which I ended up also getting to know the office staff and became a sales agent. So I was showing the show flat. Um, which didn't seem like a sales job at the time. It was just me meeting other students and telling them what I liked about the place, which was that I could get to my lecture and my toast was still warm, you know, because it was all about proximity to bars and university, you know, at the same time. Um, and I had a, I had a placement year and I, the building was brand new. And uh, I met the project manager uh, from Unite and said, hey, I'm, I'm doing a construction degree. I've got to do a sandwich sandwich placement here. Can I have a job? And, uh, and that's kind of how I ended up working in PBSA right from that choice to, to move into, um, into PBSA as, a, as an 18-year-old taking a trip to a new country. Um, and I think that that's something that I really love about this industry is that a lot of people have fallen into it. And also that as an industry, we have access to some of the greatest minds, young minds coming through and the opportunity to develop those and, and bring them in to the industry. And, and as you say, we're sat here in St. Crispin's house, which, which you go our partner business operate and they work on, you know, they have, core values of which you pro and you grow is all about supporting the the personal and professional growth of of their customers and the students that live with them and providing work opportunities and contacts within the industry um and i did that long long before there was ever a program for it but it just demonstrates how ingrained it is in the in the industry that we you know have this opportunity to spot talent and ability in, in the people that we're, uh, that are our customers effectively and, and create opportunity for the growth of the industry off the back of it. So was the biggest part of the change leaving Ireland? Was that, or oh, the hardest part, should I say? Um, I don't, I'm not sure any of it was particularly hard in a way. I've always liked change. So change to me is... I see it as an opportunity as much as I see it as a challenge. And, and, and when I see things as a challenge, I tend to, I enjoy challenge as a key, you know, aspect of the roles I've taken throughout my career is I like challenges and problem solving. So, um, so yeah, I guess moving away and getting used to being, you know, completely distant, you know, I was a flight away from, effectively anyone I knew um but you know when you're 18 and you know that can all of a sudden the person you met in the bar last night can be your best friend 
and and that's the beautiful thing of about university and i think that's the beautiful thing about um living in uh, designated student housing as well is is that opportunity to spend time in a in a special you know specially designed space safe space amongst your peers giving you the opportunity to get to know people so i guess that fear was fairly quickly overcome i guess like what is it about your well i always think in your background you're either a product or environment or you rebel against it so that might not be the case but why construction um why designing and building things what how did that how did that come about well i guess you know my my dad was in was in construction um and his main career was actually in in film set construction so quite different to to what i do now in that he built things to last for for a one hour shoot whereas whereas hopefully what what i work on will last some somewhat longer than that um but i was always interested in you know right from a young age building things at home be it tree houses getting into carpentry you know my work placements when i was at school were all carpentry based and as i said earlier on you know rather than working a paper round or you know any traditional uh job as a as a teenager i i just offered my services as a handyman and and ended up you know a, you know one of one of the first big projects i took on was building someone a a garden shed but kind of a glorified garden room shall we say uh you know i think i was 15 at the time and i drew it up and worked out what the materials would cost me and and how long it should take me and gave them a price and um you know it was back before the euro and i had a phone call a friend of mine his family had moved to spain uh and he rang up and said we're driving down to spain next week so the the client knew this and and paid me in pesetas so i thought this was the best thing ever you know i i turned you know a few few long summer days into into building something getting paid paid for it and heading straight away to spend it spend it on the costa so as i saw i said to you when we were preparing for this episode that you know i don't like to just run down people's cvs so i'm conscious to think about your current role as head of residential projects for for gsa you know um what do you do uh so head head of real estate project oh, so <laughs> um so effectively all things physical uh in the properties so be it when we're buying something undertaking the due diligence and the physical asset management plans to renovate or update uh all the way through to buying land and and assessing the opportunity to get planning um and and then developing that building all the way through to uh part of my team uh look after ESG and estates across the global portfolio so really anything anything fixed in in any of our properties globally someone me or someone in my team has had something to do with it and how obviously you talk about managing those global projects so how have you had to change in terms of, you know, I think originally you were looking after the UK and now looking after 
after global projects, how have you had to change the way you work overseeing all those different different projects? I think probably the the biggest aspect is being able to let go and trust because you can't be there all the time. So when I started out, um, GSA was effectively a startup, albeit coming from a long history. And uh, I, having worked with the team 15 years previously in, uh, in Unite on my placement and some of those uh, guys now being in GSA, I'd always kept in touch. So I ended up coming in to effectively establish our Irish office, uh, which which I did. And then we started to re-enter into the UK. So I got involved in that, including uh, all of the due diligence on the student housing company acquisition back in 2016. And at that stage, I was still very much focused on Ireland. And all of a sudden, I'm at, in a meeting with our investor and the seller and all of our consultant team talking about the acquisition of the student housing company. And then we had bought a portfolio in Germany a couple of months before that I hadn't been involved in. But all of a sudden, the investor wants to tour our German portfolio. And they say, hey, Aaron, the investor wants to tour our Irish portfolio and the German portfolio. This was a Friday afternoon. Um, So next thing I know, I'm on a plane over to Dublin pop in, say hello to Annabelle and the kids, um, show show them around the Dublin portfolio and then jump on a plane again out to Germany to see buildings that I'd never been in <laughs> to show someone around them. Um, so from kind of a very swift transition from kind of focus on Dublin, I, I relocated back to Dublin. So the job, uh, I was working in, in the UK at the time, got offered the job with GSA and I said, look, if I'm going to be setting up the Irish office, it's probably my one opportunity to try and move home and give it a go and um, see how Annabelle and the kids like it. They, the kids were both born over here. Annabelle's from Somerset. So we moved over and, you know, this is going to be great, Annabelle. There's at least five years of work in Dublin. You know, I won't be traveling. I'll be home every night. Within 12 months... I'm working in the UK, Spain, Germany. Um, and and that was kind of all the way right up until COVID. And, and you know, initially I was a team of one traveling. And then as we bought buildings and grew the portfolio, we were recruiting people or people were coming into the business with the businesses we were buying. So I was having to move from a do to a... Um, I'll take an American phrase, they like to use it, trust but verify, which is basically where they where they trust someone to go do it, but then they check it afterwards anyway. Um, I think it comes from the American military. but And then try and move on from that again to actually be able to kind of step back and go, right, what what are the strategic elements I can support with? Or what are the what are the main risk points and how can I try and lend my help and expertise to those without micromanaging the rest? And that, you know, that's an interesting pivot point from, you know, whereas in Dublin I was into the detail of everything down to the choice of the floor finish and the door handle 
to being able to then step back and go, right, we're now growing significantly around Europe and then kind of take that on to the next great leap, which was, you know, there was a little bit in Australia and Japan, but the American journey. So during COVID, we purchased, so in 2020, uh, we made our first entry into the US and I had to do the due diligence entirely via 360 degree cameras and trusting in third party due diligence teams, um, which which was a huge challenge and a definite adaption to the way I worked, but was made easier through the fact of just how small the world is, particularly in PBSA, when you realize it. And, you know, through my relationships with investors on European assets who who were based in the US, I was able to ring them up and and trade on former relationships and they really graciously opened their black books and said hey if you're looking for someone to do this here's the guy here's the person and all of a sudden this kind of network of consultants that had been on the other side acting for our investors looking at our stuff over in Europe all of a sudden I'm speaking to the same people um, and saying hey can you go visit 18 properties across 18 states in the US for me, uh, actually it was 20, 27 properties across 18 states in the US. And it's like, yep, yeah, uh, no, no problem. And then I'm, I'm, you know, up all hours on Zooms and, you know, we were trying to use drone technology. We were using cameras. We were trusting in our teams to write reports. And, you know, it's, um, it's amazing what, adversity can drive innovation and and how you can do things that you never thought possible um in in situations where you didn't think you could so we're obviously sat here in st crispin's house lovely brand new building um obviously this had to be designed how did you say you but you you as a team decide what the students wanted in this building because obviously there's quite a long lead up to that. You don't just go, right, build that, and it's built. There is. Um, you know, that's a, a really interesting question, and it's it's one I reflect on because, you know, quite often we build to an extent what's gone before. And, you know, and, and this building's no different. It follows a mold of cluster apartments and studios. Uh, we had to adapt the designs to suit, so... Uh, this building was built originally as an office in the in the early 70s um, and, and was an office building up until uh, we we purchased it um, albeit it was it was effectively vacant I think there was one 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 person or one small business rattling around in a very large uh, building uh, so we we designed to suit uh, to suit the building layout and designed uh, to suit generally what's become the norm in in the british market um we did take some cues from the building so we've tried to date a lot of the interiors to match the age of the original construction and we've also developed the amenity spaces i think you know as we were talking about earlier before the pod you know 
amenity space and, and the development of PBSA, the rooms are broadly similar from the early 2000s to now. You know, we still put a ensuite, a desk, if it's a studio, a kitchenette, and a bed. And, you know, you can change that around all you like, but roughly you're you're playing in the in the same in the same sandbox whereas amenity spaces going back you know 20 years didn't exist and then they started to exist as very small rooms with a pool table next to the laundry and then grew a little bit more where we tried to have every use under the sun all in the same building i think you know thankfully the industry's evolved from that and and this this room that we're in is is the first ever podcast room we've we've built uh, in our portfolio and kind of reflects the changing tastes and um, focus of our customers. And right next door is a creative workspace with uh, space for various arts, be it painting or fabrics, um, and and a green room as well as well as study space, a gym, and you know trying to understand different students' needs, but kind of stepping away from all of that, something that has become a an increased demand rather than request in our properties is actually the sustainability credentials of them. So first and foremost, with this building, we had the great opportunity of being able to bring a tired and outdated building back to life. Uh, thus saving significant embodied carbon, shortening the build program, minimizing the traffic impacts on the, and noise impacts on the neighbors, but also then being able to build, you know, an A-rated, brand new, state-of-the-art PBSA building for the future, you know, and we're, we've focused our designs and our designs are increasingly driven by the requirements of of certification everything obviously from building control but but through to uh fit well um and this building we're we're on track to deliver a three-star rating and and briam very good but all of that kind of i guess that's all the the macro on a micro level we've got to really think about the people that use the space and you know the analogy i like to use when i'm briefing designers or talking about it with the team is imagine you're living in the room what would you like and what would drive you mad and I kind of use the analogy of a hotel room where you're there for a night and you know you're ready for bed you get into bed and then you realize there's no light switch by the bed so you you have to get back up you go get up and you turn off the light and then you have to either stumble across to the bed in the dark or use your phone torch to get back to the bed, and then you realize there's nowhere to plug your phone in. Um, so what we try and do is actually think about how people use a space. So everything from, you know, ensuring that there's a full-length mirror in a location that someone can actually step back and see themselves in, um, and ideally has a power socket next to it so they can use hair dryers or hair straighteners through to being able to turn your lights off from beside the bed you know so it's the use factor as much as it's the co- cosmetic and aesthetic that i think as an industry where we've been refining over the years all of that being said 
I think there is time for a shakeup. I think we, you know, we've just talked about amenity space and how that's grown exponentially over the years. But actually, the bedroom has stayed very, very similar. You know, at a push, you might go down to 10 square meters. At a max, you might go up to 15. But it's, you know, is it a three-quarter bed or a double bed? Is it a double wardrobe or a single wardrobe? You know, is the bed under the window or is it the desk? They're the kind of choices that we've been making and, you know, claiming to be innovative for the last 20 years. But actually, as we create these fantastic study spaces outside of the rooms, is a desk in a room still relevant? Um, and, you know, at the moment, surveys suggest they are. But it's very difficult to do a qualitative survey to say, well, if you had great study space and your room was smaller because we didn't need to put a desk in and because it was smaller, we were able to charge you less money um, and, and create a more affordable product. I guess that that's something that we're striving to achieve. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, the lazy answer as to why we haven't done it is, you know, regulation tends to stipulate minimum room sizes and minimal requirements. But actually, as an industry, we need to get together and we need to get together with, with the regulators and actually sit down and go, what, what are our priorities for the future? Rather than looking back to what we did in the past, it's what to... What do our customers now need? Do they need just a safe space to sleep, dress and change in? Um, and everything else can be provided outside of the room. And it's it's really interesting. I have the the good fortune, I suppose, in my role to see uh, to see properties all over the world. So from six people sharing what we call a, a nest in 36 square meters, which uh, for context, is about the size of two small studios, um, to America, where space wasn't at a premium, particularly in some of the out-of-town uh, campus-style accommodation, where where people have townhouses. You know, PBSA in certain parts of America are whole housing estates. Um so the size standards and, and the location of what you're building has dictated what we build as opposed to necessarily the customer because, you know, students are, can travel, you know. So you might have the same student living with you in Texas as you might in Norwich, London, Madrid, you know, so uh, or or Tokyo. So how do we, why do we design certain things in some markets and go, this is going to work brilliantly. And then we don't take that learning to other markets. Um, and that's something that me and the team and, and as an industry, I think we're trying to do, we're trying to take those learnings. Um, but it's difficult because people think they want what they've always had. And you know, I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, Henry Ford had said when, when he was building the Model T, you know, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. 
but obviously until until the the motor car became popular then all of a sudden the change happens and you know you go back to look at mobile phones you know our whole world revolves around our smartphone now whereas you know being able to play snake and phone someone uh was a miracle not that long ago you know um and i guess you know going on to that sort of design affordability piece um you know, this this building's got amazing amenity space you know we've just had a walk around it it's absolutely fabulous um and it comes from the point of what you're saying about not customers don't necessarily know what they want and neither do the regulators so if I wonder if you spoke to a student, not necessarily here, but in another building with fabulous amenity space, said you could just have your study bedroom and a desk, but none of this amenity space, but it'd be 50 quid a week cheaper. I do wonder which option they'd go for. Um, and, and I think the, the attitude in the sector might be that they would go for the cheaper option, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. I think... I think it depends on the customer, it depends on the students and their socioeconomic background to, to a large extent. And, you know, definitely affordability is an issue. And, and I do think, you know, the sector can do something towards that, but I don't think it, all of the onus is on the private sector. You know, the universities themselves have, have a significant uh, onus on them as well to uh, and government, you know, to to make education open and accessible for all. Um, but I I think there's a place for all all levels, and I think that's I think at the moment with the way construction costs are and the way regulations are, what's happened is we've got this rush to amenitize and in some places over amenitize and over specify because we think oh, well, it's got to have a, you know, shiny chrome socket and it's got to have a stone work surface and because this is what they're used to at home. But actually, if we stop and think and go, what do people really care about? And and coming back to my earlier point, you know, I think the practical use case of, of the space and how it functions, so, you know, function over style, it needs to come first doesn't mean it's got to be devoid of style but i think if we can get the function right and we can get the the space right and i think there are you know coming back to your your option of the zero amenity and and cheaper space to an extent that's what Hymo offers um but part of that amenity and part of the service offering of pbsa and and the way we design and to an extent, passively design. I think a lot of people don't realize they're doing it because it's just become the norm. But simple things like safety and security, you know, to get into this building, to get into your room, you come through a secure access door past a, a manned uh, concierge or, or reception. Uh, you then pass through at least two more secure doors before you get into your private bed space. So, you know, someone could follow you through the first door, maybe through the second, but, you know, so you're designing in this passive security whilst also trying to focus on a sense of arrival. So, you know, you're in a Yugo space, you arrive, you're, and, and it's not just 
big bold branding it's it's about the ambience it's about the welcome you get and the you, you know you know broadly speaking you know the building typologies across the world are completely different but i know i'm in a yugo space because of how the staff greet me and and behave and and the levels of security in place and the thought that's gone into that and i think that's the same in in large parts of the industry but i guess those are the things that might get taken for granted and get lost if we said well do you want do you want this which looks good or do you want that which is basic i think there are there are certain things that just shouldn't be removed you know there there should be a kind of a a minimum standard when it comes to um safety security student well-being um and that aspect of of the design but certainly there are elements of the buildings you know i think it's fantastic we've got a gym in pretty much all of our buildings but you know universities still provide a gym um and and we've got to start looking at well where's the double up and for two reasons one in terms of cost because ultimately whatever anything costs ends up as a as an impact on what the customer pays but also we've got to think about the cost to the environment so space we're using space that could be used for another use it could be more beds it could be it could be any number of of uh different different use classes and and we've got to look at where that duplication is and that kind of comes back to the point we talked about earlier about the desk in a bedroom you know we've got study space and then we've got a desk in a bedroom in you know yes some students absolutely study in their bedroom how many of them study at the desk rather than sitting on their bed probably split it in half again and then you go okay well what does the desk get used for it gets used to does it get used to put a telly on is it somewhere where you sit and do your makeup and and we've got to think about well could we do that more efficiently and create alternative spaces um for people to do these things to allow us to still provide those minimum standards whilst also providing something uh new and innovative but coming from a space of both financial and environmental um management to to Im- improve both the affordability and the impact on on the environment so i spoke to somebody recently on the on the podcast about you know they're taking some investors around a, a property and they said to him oh, i could live here it's amazing and he said well i've probably got it wrong then because it's not aimed at you and when you know back when i was working for different providers you know i had a huge amount of say as just maybe the general manager in what was in the building amenity space colors all sorts you know back then was sort of um you know i was asked the question and asked to give my opinion now as a white male approaching thir- approaching 40 God, i wish i was approaching 30 approaching 40 <laughs> i'd probably get it wrong for what the students want now so how did you and the team make sure that you know that there's not that you know i'd love to put a podcast studio in every accommodation but that's not right for the students right so yeah. you know how do you get to 
understand what those needs and wants are, especially for the future, and not sort of put your own, not necessarily yours, but those decision makers' bias on it. Indeed. And it's a really, it is a really difficult point. Uh, you know, I've been in countless design meetings where it's the development team making decisions. Oh, I don't like that color or, oh, I wouldn't have that. And it's actually, we'll step back. Let's, first of all, we've, we've employed, you know, hugely talented designers who've done research and are up to speed with current trends and, 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 needs so let's listen to their professional opinion but also we work really closely with our sister business hugo uh, who have a design team in-house and conduct multiple surveys across the globe and across different different regions and and both separately and combined to try and understand trends and and student student desires uh so we, we try and do that. We don't necessarily do the trends for each and every development, but certainly once a year. Uh, but we will absolutely work very collaboratively with Hugo um, on, on the design development in, in those early stages uh, to set out the use cases in the building, the priorities, the likely clientele. So, you know, this building has, has majored on kind of media and art because we're in Norwich we're around the corner of um you know Norwich Art, Arts University uh so you know we do try and target to suit to suit the demographic likely to to live there but we've got to evolve I think staying staying still um you know me, means we'll end up because a development project can take at least two, if not three years from start to finish. So if you're looking backwards before you start, by the time you finish, you're actually five years behind uh, because the product you're looking at is probably designed three years before. So you're you're at least five years out of date by the time it opens. And I think we've got to be quite careful of that. Um, but, you know, coming back to the, the functionality you know i'm a firm believer in if we can choose good quality materials that will last and and chosen on the basis of life cycle with a you know with an aesthetic choice around it but focus on you know sustainable long-lasting hardwaring materials that will look good over time we can change the small things it's easy to paint a room it's easy to change some some soft furnishings, but let's get the building technology right. And by technology, I'm I'm not talking about all the fantastic equipment that I don't understand in this room. Uh, I'm talking about you know the ventilation, the heating. Let's make sure that when people, everything that people expect is delivered and delivered really well, and then everything else is a bonus that we can play around the fringes and we can adapt and develop over time but if if you start with a poor core or a bad foundation as as we know you know then everything else is is rotten from there on in so i think if we focus on the basics get them really right then we can adapt the specifics and actually there's not that many areas 
that get tweaked. You know, this this room is a podcast room, but if podcasting wasn't something that was used, you know, it would be a very minimal change to turn it into a study room or a music room. It's acoustically uh, protected. All of a sudden, it's a band practice room. So I think as long as you get the basics right, you can you can develop and change and adapt to your customer base as they change and adapt. Thinking about developing a building, what has been the hardest parts recently in terms of pressures on on the construction industry that are affecting buildings going up as quickly as we like? Because you know we hear everything, whether it be student housing or or housing in the private sector, we need more housing. It's not quite as simple as that. And as you say, it could, it takes years to, to bring, bring a building such as this. So what are the sort of pressures that we're seeing in the industry at the moment? Honestly, it's, it's the first time in my career where I've seen pressures on all sides. Normally, you know, if, if finance isn't particularly available then normally there's a glut of contractors wanting to do your work because there aren't many projects. Um, if construction is expensive, there's normally it normally a sign that the market's good and finance is cheap, so you can get finance um, or land or planning. But we've got this perfect storm of a huge backlog in the planning uh, space globally. You know, it's taking longer and longer to get planning permission or zoning, whatever you want to call it, across the globe. Um, There's increasing um, disaffection in communities about the buildings and the lack of say they have in what's going where. And that's creating, uh, you know, creating resentment in communities, which is then causing blockers to, to development. And, you know, I'm not suggesting we should run roughshod over. We need to hear those voices. But I think more as well as hear them, we need to explain. Um, we need to explain our intent. And, and you know, the, you know, PBSA generally, you know, getting the message across that for every three beds in a, in a PBSA building, you're freeing up a house for a family, you know, because those students would be, in HIMO somewhere. Um, but not only that, but they're in a managed, professionally managed building where, as we've talked about, safety and security are are kind of a given, but also there's management there to manage any, any challenges or any, uh, you know, a lot of sentiment around student accommodation is it's going to be noisy, it's going to be messy. I tell you, I'd, I'd much rather have you know, a managed student accommodation building next door than people with no management in a in a HIMO next door to me. Um, because, you know, we provide spaces for people to have parties deliberately. We design them uh, rather than in a, in a, you know, through a thin wall, dividing wall in a terraced house. Um, so planning is a huge challenge. Finance um is an increasing challenge and you know i think markets are are starting to predict a stabilization i think some optimists are predicting 
you know, a reduction in rate. I think let's let's hold the pen on that. But at least some stabilization and some certainty would be great. And, and that feels like it's coming. But then we get to construction and you think with all these pressures on planning and on finance, surely there's contractors banging your door down trying to build your build for you because they're not busy enough. They're busier than ever with fewer people in the industry. So, you know, we're we're not training enough uh, professionals in the in the built environment uh, across consultancies and contractors. We're not we're not training enough trades um, and it's hard work you know the appreciation for what the contractors do to deliver our buildings I think you know you can fall into a trap in in the client side of the industry um, of going you know we just want it built and what why aren't these contractors just doing what we asked and what why isn't it ready but the the challenges they have from you know, getting materials, the procurement of materials, particularly through COVID, went just crazy in terms of lead times. Getting labour to site, getting the labour to stay on site and want to work there. You know, when every other industry is at near full employment, you know, you've got to really be passionate about your job to want to get up on a roof at seven o'clock in the, on a dark morning in December um to make sure that building gets going and you know i'm passionate about making sure the building is finished and open for the students come september but you know do i stop and think oof it's really cold and icy and there's a storm out there you know what why aren't why aren't they carrying on and getting it built and you know i think we need to recognize that um the people who who build our buildings are hugely important we need to recognize the skills that they have and you know obviously i'm in i'm in the student sector so university um you know obviously believe in in the benefits of education but it's not the only route to education i think we've got to we've got to also recognize that perhaps this drive to degrees has diminish the kind of respect that we give to people taking alternative routes and you know a career in the construction industry can be an amazing thing but it's quite a hard sell to young people coming out of school when they've got so many other choices so we need to actually demonstrate the value and the the benefits of of that to them um you know and that's something going back on my career having done my sandwich here with uh with unite really enjoyed working in the development space being on the client side um kind of the that more strategic view of there's a piece of land what can we put on it but throughout that year i really gained an appreciation of what the contractors were doing on the sites i was going to visit but also gained an appreciation of how little i knew about what they did and realized, well, if I'm going to manage these sorts of projects, I can carry on and, and try and when I finish university, carry on either with Unite or someone else, be it student or other, uh, working on the client side. But I'll still never quite know what goes on on a site.
So I, I made that kind of decision coming out of university to to go back into the contracting, well, to go into the contracting side and kind of had always set myself a goal that I would stay there until I delivered projects to the scale that I wanted to deliver as a client. Um, and that's what I did. I, I did um, I did eight, eight years in, in main contracting in, in central London and, and throughout the southwest of the UK. Um, and then the opportunity to come into this role came back up and I, I felt, well, I've, I've built a good depth of experience now on the other side of the fence, uh, which does give you an appreciation of, of the work that they do that's done and also hopefully gave me, gave me some learnings to try and see how we can improve that um, for, for the deliverability, both for the end customer, but also as a means to get there, to make sure that we're designing things that can be built safely um, and, and avoiding designing things that are overly challenged to build for no material gain when you could, we, you could choose an alternative construction methodology in your design. Now, I always mess up the ESG question, so I'll try and get it right today. Uh, whenever I'm asking it, um, read a lot, and obviously working in the US as well, about ESG fatigue and people finding, you know, it's become a bit of a a bit of a term that can be a tick box for some organisations, or um, or people are a bit tired of hearing. Um, is there enough appetite? We could focus on the UK, for example, to still for the ESG agenda or are we seeing ESG fatigue in the UK as well? I think it's an interesting question. Um, I think the terminology, perhaps a bit of fatigue. I think the demand has never been higher from, and it is generally coming from investors down and from customers up. So Mm -hmm. from students up and investors down. Um, And I think actually we're moving thankfully to a stage where large parts of it are becoming business as usual. I think there's absolutely more we can do. Uh, there's definitely more we can do as an industry and, and, and kind of in the macro environment, the government and other industries can do a lot more as well. But focusing on ourselves, I think what we need to do is move away from this concept of ESG being, um, being something other and, oh, well, I'll get to that when I have time. Actually, a lot of things and, and a lot of the industry has been doing ESG without knowing they've been doing ESG. You know, back in 2015, when we first started building in, in Dublin, ESG wasn't particularly on our agenda. But we knew that, you know, I'd come from, I'd built some PFI projects where life cycle and energy efficiency were critical to the financial model. Um, and I was looking at, well, if we choose this material instead of that material, we'll get five more years of wear out of it, or we'll save some energy and it's going to, you know, during its use, um, or, you know, simple things like, you know, linking a window to the heating or in warmer climates, linking it to the AC so that, you know, behavior is a key aspect in, particularly in an environment where utilities are all included 
without education, I don't think it's a a badness. It's it's more of a lack of awareness. People will leave the heating on full, and when they get too hot, open the window. Um, because well, I'm not paying for that. It's on anyway. Whereas you know, rather than trying to work on a whole behavior behavioral change program, I think let's do what we can passively. So, you know, for a couple of pounds, you can put a contact on your window during construction. It's much more expensive later. Uh, that means that when the windows open, the heating or the cooling turns off. So I think we can, we can design things. And as operational real estate, I think to a large extent, the PBSA sector is probably further ahead than a lot of other sectors because we're not just building to sell. We're building for that long term, even if even if it's being built by a merchant developer to sell, to stabilize and then sell to another PBSA operator or investor. Their value comes from a multiplier of, of NOI. And NOI is is impacted by the operational cost of the building. So be that changing flooring and materials within the building because you've used cheap stuff and you have to change it every year or be it the utility bill or the water usage so actually within our sector not only is there you know regulatory need investor demand customer demand you know there's also financial benefit um to improving things and then you know overarching all of that i think Every one of us on the planet has an obligation to try to do something about the climate crisis that we're we're heading into, and it's you know it's something it's something that we've got to we've got to deal with. You know, I travel extensively for work. I fly an inordinate amount. Um, do I I I try and fly less using technology and you know the learnings from COVID, but also you know, ensure that what I am doing when I'm out in places is also looking at how we can improve um, improve our environmental impact from all of our buildings. And I would like to think that all of the work we do uh, around the world on that, and it's something we've really ramped up over the last uh, 12 to 24 months and, and have a big program of, of ESG works, uh, for 2024 planned will will minimize that impact of 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 travel but you know talking about esg i think a lot of people you know even i would just jump straight into the e we don't talk about the s and the g and i think you know g for governance frankly any professional business that doesn't have good governance isn't a professional business so i think to think of it as a separate other ESG, I must do this. Any business has to do the governance. So that should be looked after and done. So then we come to the yes and we think, well, what industry are we in? We're we're in the student sector, you know, so social. What can we do? So A, we can provide great environments for our people to work in. Um, and then we think about our customer and the opportunities we have with our customer base. I think we've probably got the most engaged customer base of pretty much energy any industry. You know, we've got young people, you know, unfortunately, 
we're both getting older, but our customer base stays the same age year after year. They're broadly 18 to 21. You know, you'll get a few older than that. You might get a couple of 17-year-olds. But broadly, they're, they're in that age range. And increasingly, you know, environmental concerns are becoming a, a key point. And, and survey after survey across the industry, across the UK and globally, is highlighting that sustainability concerns are and social concerns are increasingly becoming a factor in the choice of what products people buy where they stay and it's primarily driven um to the shame frankly of the older generations it's primarily driven uh by the younger generations coming through um so we've got to try and incorporate it in our life so Yes, there's some ESG fatigue. I think mainly just because it's, you know, it's just out there as an acronym, you know. But when you actually sit down and talk to someone about what it means and how it's becoming and needs to become part of business as usual, I think then there's an understanding. So I think it's more of a communication fatigue rather than an actual fatigue. All that being said, there is a frightening level of politicization around ESG and it's something that I I didn't really appreciate until I started spending a lot more time in America and to see that you know in certain states there's there's mandates from certain investors that they will not invest in your fund if you spend money on ESG policies now that doesn't stop you doing it because instead of calling it ESG, you say, well, actually, I'm going to install solar panels because I'm going to reduce my electricity com- consumption. Or, you know what, you know, take a completely alternative view of it and go, you know, it's my building. It's it's my son that's falling on, on the building. So you actually change the message uh, rather than change the output. And I think that's probably the learning I've gained over the last couple of years is is the communication and the way we talk about ESG as opposed to the actions we take. Um, to get that support, we need to sometimes change the message, which is a shame. You would like to think the, that everyone would be on the same page, that we've got to try and do our best for the environment for the people around us that we and our stakeholders that we impact and that we should have good governance. But um, unfortunately, it's become a bit of a touch point for and a sore point for some people. So change the message rather than rather than not do what we should be doing anyway. So obviously you're busy developing buildings all over the world, flying about. When do you find time for sailing? Um, nowhere near enough, <laughs> nowhere near enough. I, uh, I, I did what I thought was the best thing I could do, which was we, we moved to a house where I can see the sailing club. So I can at least, you know, uh, <laughs> at least feel Wait like, <laughs> feel like I might get down there. Um, certainly, certainly work-life balance, you know, is a challenge in in that regard so sailing sailing does unfortunately play i'd love to say 
second or third fiddle. It's probably much further down the list than that. But, you know, I do I do try and get out whenever I can. And I, I'm, I'm a very keen hiker as well. So, I, you know, again, really keen to to get out and walk and, and we'll try and integrate it into my travels every so often. I have, you know, when I was touring the States last year, doing doing lots of property tours for some acquisitions, found myself in Georgia at the bottom of the Appalachian Trail. So I thought, right, I have an afternoon. I'll hike the first section of that. So I do try and integrate it. But one of the one of the beautiful things uh, as I've advanced in my career is, you know, have opportunity to see how we can integrate and and do things slightly differently. And, and I was delighted that uh, with a group of my colleagues last year, we managed to found uh, and hold the inaugural student student living sailing regatta down in the Hamble. Uh, where we got about 80 people from the industry uh, from primarily across the UK and Ireland. We did have a boat, not the physical boat, but all of the crew over from the US. And we had some from from mainland Europe as well. And we had a one day regatta um, and a networking event in the evening. And it gave a fantastic opportunity for people to get to know each other in a way that you just can't get to know each other across a, a meeting table or even at a you know a more standard conference um and it also gave us a really great opportunity to raise some valuable funds uh for two charities so we raised some money for pathways to property um which which helps encourage people um who wouldn't otherwise maybe see a a route into the property industry i think you had patty allen on the on the pod previously who talked a little bit about it and then also to the Tall Ships Trust, uh, who generally support young people um, who may not otherwise have opportunity to get into a maritime career or opportunities um, to train them up and take them on uh, sail training voyages, which really helps to develop their teamwork and leadership skills, as well as their maritime skills and equip them uh, and provide them opportunities for for careers. You know, and it's a funny fact about our industry particularly in the UK as to how interlinked port cities and and student cities are uh, I suppose it's not that surprising given that you know the UK and Ireland are both islands but you know if you think about you know Portsmouth Southampton Plymouth Cardiff um, Newcastle and and Liverpool many others in between you know strong port cities where perhaps the the local, the local young people uh, have seen the growth of the universities around them, but perhaps not the opportunities. So being able to kind of do something as an industry to spend time together, um, having fun and getting to know each other, but also to raise some funds for some charities that, that support these young people that are so important to all of our futures. Okay, so we've come on to the quick fire round questions now. So if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Oh, one thing makes it really difficult, doesn't it? Um, because there's, you know, there's so many things that, that we'd like to do. But I think, I think coming back to it, I suppose it's, we've, we've really got to start taking climate change and, and the environment seriously and, and see how, 
how we can improve our impact, not just, you know, all the conversation at the moment is, is reduce or improve, but actually how can we start to improve, um, you know, and a lot of, you know, there's new policies coming in. There's the, you know, the biodiversity uh, requirement in planning coming in. And yes, can that be a barrier to development? Yes. But is it needed? Absolutely. And and we need to embrace these things and and work innovatively to find out how we can how we can make a positive contribution in, in everything we do and and improve improve the environment for for our kids and, and their kids and, and their kids to come because you know we haven't we haven't as as a you know an industry as a country as a human race we haven't necessarily been been the best caretakers of the planet for the last the last few generations um and i think it's it's really time we need we need to change that um and as part of that i think we we really need to learn to be able to listen to differing sides of stories as well and and to really understand where any resistance is uh we seem to have we seem to have lost the the ability to understand nuance lately i I see a a, an unfortunate um kind of growth in polarization um across the world be it politically be it on the subject of climate change be it um on on any number of of subjects and actually the ability just to you know disagree but disagree amicably and and hear each other out and and perhaps learn from other people's uh, point of view and how you know because by by ridiculing or marginalizing other opinions we're never going to get people into the same tent and and only a collective effort will make real change. Okay, and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start? Again, uh, a great question. I think, you know, procrastination is is the killer of of any anyone wanting to change anything. You know, I think this concept of it's not quite ready yet. I'm not, it's not perfect. You know, I think if we all had an honest conversation about, you know, I really want to have kids, but when am I going to have, oh, I'm not ready yet. The house isn't quite right. My job's not quite right. I'm traveling. You, you'd never do it. So I think, I think to an extent, you've got to take that calculated risk and just start and, and get into it, which is, you know, it, it is a big leap. Um, but I think there are things you can do to, to mitigate some of that. You can, you can sound out people, trusted people. You can, you can develop your network, make contacts. You can start something on the side. You can, you know, obviously within reason and, and if necessary in, in discussion with your employer. Um, but I think, I think really just taking positive action as opposed to perhaps overthinking and never doing. What's going to be your next big change? I think for me, for me, I think what I need to do is I need to really work out how to, 
how to best best deliver what I can do for the business whilst also making it work a little bit more for me. I think, you know, during the COVID period, being able to be at home and, and spend that time with the family was fantastic. Obviously, it was a really challenging period for a lot of people. Um, but it did give me a different perspective that perhaps in the last couple of years I've, I've kind of forgotten. Um, and I think looking forward, um, you know, if I could sail a little bit more, um, while, while still, while still doing my job and, and achieving what we need to achieve. So I think being able to empower those within, within the team and, and trust in, in the teams as well as consultants and, and those others. So developing the issues never with them. The issues always internally, isn't it? It's, so the next big change for me is is to to be able to to empower those around me for two reasons one because absolutely they can do it um but two to try and improve my work life balance and spend a little bit more time with with the family and and hopefully you know in enjoying enjoying the fruits of of work as opposed to um you know, like there's no, there's nothing glamorous about a, a career traveling around the world when you're up at three o'clock in the morning and on a Ryanair flight to Stansted as I was this morning or, you know, arriving home from the US on a, you know, weekend lunchtime, so tired from working all week that you're basically in bed for the weekend and, and the kids go off to school Monday morning and you go back to work. So Definitely, that's something that uh, that I've got to look at in in the new year. And the final question, which I know everyone looks forward to, if you could recommend someone or more than one person for me to speak to on the podcast, who would it be? Um, I've been thinking about this one. I I thought what might be interesting for you is um, there's a wonderful woman in the Yugo team uh, based out in Denver, in Colorado, Kiona Lee, who uh, heads up heads up sales and marketing. And she's been in the U.S. industry for about 15 years. And I think, you know, hearing hearing her journey through the U.S. PBSA industry, which has grown up broadly isolated from the from the European and, and predominantly U.K. centric PBSA industry. And then to come into the, the Yugo business as part of an acquisition of of the portfolio that she she worked in, I think that could be quite an interesting conversation to rather than getting the UK centric opinion of how PBSA is expanding around the world, get the opinion of how it was, you know, developing completely independently, and then the change or the observations of now working with a global European centric business. Uh, so I think that could be quite an interesting, um, I think Yonu could be really interesting to, to hear from. And then I guess the person that, that I worked closest with and, and, you know, worked for was my boss for, for, for the first number of years while I was in GSA, Tim Mitchell, uh, who's kind of been around the industry, um, since, since the beginning, uh, back in the early Unite days and, has been been on a journey through multiple 
multiple big uh, student businesses, but is now, you know, has stepped out of GSA a number of years ago. I think he, he took a, a reasonable amount of time sailing, which, which I can absolutely respect. But he, I know he's working again now, but also working with a number of uh, charities as well. And I think getting his his um, take on the journey and, and the changes he's had and seen through throughout his career could be very interesting. That's great. Thanks. We'll, uh, I'll definitely speak to both of them and try and get, uh, maybe I'll try and get them to Norwich as we are today. <laughs> um, Aaron, just want to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. I mean, it's been fascinating listening to you talk about how you got into the industry and, and how the, the buildings for students of the future are being, being designed and built and, and, and it's not quite as easy as some people might think. So, um, so yeah, thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for having me.